this morning we're actually going to be getting a new series uh, on gospel-centered relationships. Pastor Timon will be preaching very shortly on the gospel-centeredness of singleness. And we're honoured this morning to have Gwynfa come and actually share with us her journey now. So please would you welcome Gwynfa. Good morning. My prayer today is that through sharing my story, you'll be able to see clearly God's good hand upon my life from the beginning in 1948 as a premature three and a half pound or one and a half kilogram baby, even though I arrived in this world sooner than expected, it didn't, God, didn't take God by surprise. Through all the years, God has provided, protected, cared, directed and blessed me in more ways than I could ever have imagined. I had the privilege of having two godly parents who didn't just tell me about Jesus, but every day demonstrated before my brother and I what it meant to live a life that glorified the Lord. Their time alone with God every day was a priority. And even though it's 28 years now since they've gone to heaven, their example still challenges me today. I grew up always thinking I'd be a nurse, go to Bible college, and then be a missionary, and probably along the way, God would provide a husband for me. I mean, it all seemed pretty straightforward to me. I mean, how hard could that be? But that wasn't exactly the way my life panned out. Yes, I did become a nurse, and I had three wonderful years at the Bible College of New Zealand. And even though many of my friends met their future husbands while we were at college and married afterwards, that was not my experience. After graduating from Bible College, I came to Adelaide <coughs> to work amongst nurses in a Christian ministry called Nurses Christian Fellowship. I was in my mid-twenties and I was sure that God would bring a husband along for me to marry. But when I turned 30, the reality started to hit me. Hey, maybe I won't ever get married. I was a youth leader for all those years and it really <coughs> didn't make it any easier. Attending numerous weddings of girls many years younger than me. It seemed so easy for them. I began to question God. How come there's no one for me? That's not fair. Satan had a field day for many years telling me those lies that I believed. Lies like, you're not really complete until you're married. Well, you're only half a person without a husband. There must be something wrong with you if no one wants to marry you. I would say, how come you don't have a husband for me, Lord? I would vent my anger to God. But God was so gracious. He must have got tired of me coming to him time and again with these same complaints. God's sovereignty is one of the truths that I've returned to time and again when I doubted what was or was not happening in my life regarding a life partner. I strongly believe that if we're seeking to honour the Lord and his will, for our lives, then he'll only bring the best for us. His timing is very different from ours and waiting on him can be hard 
but so worthwhile. Rather than try to manufacture things and making them happen according to the way we want rather than God's plan. I found this quote particularly encouraging. What we know of God encourages us to trust him in all we do not know. Matthew 6.34 reassured me as well. It says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. God will take care of your tomorrows to live one day at a time. I ask the Lord to make that a reality in my life. Looking back, I can see clearly one of the reasons God led me into nursing, so that I could have the privilege of nursing my mum for nine months with cancer before she died. As a single person, I was free to leave my life here in Adelaide and return to my hometown in country Victoria to be a support for my dad and care for my mum. Then 18 months later, my dad developed cancer and I brought him over here and cared for him for the last six weeks of his life. I was able to devote my time to giving them my love and care. They had given that to me my entire life, so to me it was a privilege to return some of that love to them. Those were some of the hardest times in my life but some of the most precious memories that I will always treasure. Pastor Paul and Ruth Hugenrad and Lou and Kathy George and Kathy's parents, Mr and Mrs Jenkins, have been so generous to me by including me in their families. I've seen all the Hugenrad and George children grow up from babies and what an incredible joy to see them all growing in their love for the Lord. And those who are married now having godly input into their own children. Even though I've never had my own children, I value each one of them as a very special part of my life. And I've had some precious times with them over the years. They've been a blessing from the Lord in my life. And I've also had the privilege of seeing so many other children from other families in the church here grow up to love and serve God. With no family of my own living here in Adelaide, City Reach has been my family for all those years, since 1976. And I've experienced the sacrificial love that you've demonstrated to me during tough times, including several health challenges. You've been and still are such a blessing to me. And God has given me spiritual children also through discipling many young women and following up new Christians, and now this year being involved mentoring a lovely young lady from our church who's in her first year at university. I wouldn't be honest if I said that it's all been easy as a single person. Of course it hasn't. There are times when I've been lonely and long to have someone to share my life with. But God has time and again comforted me by reminding me that I'm never alone. There have been times when I would love to have had a husband to fix the washer in the dripping tap instead of having to pay a fortune for a plumber to come and fix such a simple job. But my encouragement to you and what has helped keep me on track are these four things. Stay in the word of God. Ask God daily to guide you through prayer. Stay in fellowship with other Christians 
and seek out opportunities to invest your life in the lives of others and your life will be so enriched. I strongly believe that everything that happens is so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ and glorify him. I have had and am still having a very fulfilled and satisfying life. I don't feel like God has shortchanged me or that somehow I've landed second best. It's been God's plan for me to be single and I wanted to continue to live in a way that honours him and blesses other people. Thank you for listening. So this morning we are looking at gospel-centred relationships and we're going to look firstly at singleness. The reason we decided to start in this place is because often the way that the church explains singleness is often very unhelpful and unloving towards single people. For example, one of the common ways, one of the phrases that you'll hear is this phrase, as soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. As if, you know, the problem, the reason why you're single is because you're not content. Once you actually deal with your contentment issues, then God will actually bless you that way. Or you'll hear people say this, you're too picky. You just need to settle for Mr. and Mrs. right here. As if having high standards is a problem in, you know, finding someone. Or you'll hear this, before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. As if the reason why people are single is because there's something deficient in them. And now, when you think about it, behind all of these common ways the church seeks to explain singleness is this premise. That singleness means there is something wrong with you. And single people feel it. They feel like, especially in the church family where marriage is often upheld, they feel like there must be something wrong with them. Or people think there is something wrong with them because they are single. But there are many different types of single people in our church. For example, there are young adults who are not yet married who haven't yet reached that stage in their life. There are also divorced people who were once married and the pain of divorce has come into their life and now they found themselves single. There are also widowers whose spouse may have died. They never anticipated that they would be single, but this tragic thing has happened and now they're single. And there are also older adults in our church who never married. And so there are all different types of singles in our church, and we need to understand that there are all different types of singleness in our church, and they have all different types of needs, all these different single people. Now, you might be married, or you might be dating, or you might be engaged this morning, and you might be thinking, why do I need to listen to a, a message about singleness? Well, the reality is, is you don't know when you might become single. Your marriage might fail through no fault of your own, and you might end up in that painful place of divorce, and you might become single. Or you might lose your husband or your wife, and you might become single. But even if that doesn't happen to you, we're a family. We are members of one another. So we need to understand 
what all of the single people in our church are going through. And we need to have a biblical perspective on singleness. So that's what I want to look at this morning. How are we to think biblically about singleness? And it's interesting, the Bible presents the goodness and blessing of singleness. Oftentimes, churches um, present this idea that there's something wrong with you if you're single, but actually the Bible presents the goodness and the blessing of singleness. Now, as Lou said, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 might not seem like the obvious place to talk about singleness. Now, just to give you a bit of an insight, the way that um, the letter of 1 Corinthians works is the way that 1 Corinthians works is that there must have been these members of Chloe's household. Chloe was obviously this patron in the early church and just rich woman in the early church. And these servants of Chloe had returned to her from the church at Corinth and had given her a report of all the things that were happening in the church at Corinth. And in the first six chapters, Paul deals with all those things that were happening in the church at Corinth, the lawsuits that were happening between believers, the sexual immorality that was happening, all those, the divisions, he deals with that in the first six chapters. But also, they must have, they must have carried with them some correspondence from the Corinthians with some specific questions that the Corinthians had for Paul. And Paul begins in chapter 7 and he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, class, when you look at that verse, when you're studying the Bible, you need to put on your spectacles and the first thing you need to ask is, what do I see? That's the first step in Bible study methods. Now, when you look at this verse, what do you see? What do you observe in this verse? Do you notice that there are inverted commas around that statement, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationship with a woman? With a woman. Did you notice that? Now, all the English teachers here this morning, what do inverted commas denote? That it's a quote. It's direct speech. You see, what you'll find in the book or the letter of 1 Corinthians is you'll find these Corinthian slogans. These, these things that the Corinthians were teaching, these ideas that the Corinthians had. And what Paul does is he picks up these ideas and then he says, this is how you think, but this is how you should think. And it seems that what had happened in the church at Corinth, because of the rampant sexual immorality, they had said, well, the way to avoid sexual immorality is to avoid sex altogether. It is good for a person not to have sex whatsoever if you want to avoid sexual immorality. You know, some churches have that perspective on sex. Sex is wicked, evil, and bad, so save it for the one you love. That's the perspective. Oh, that was a joke, by the way. You can laugh. That's the perspective of some churches when it comes to sex. But Paul actually upholds the value of sexual intimacy in marriage. And he says, because of, sex, because of sexual immorality, every woman needs to have her husband, and every man should have a wife. And he says, you shouldn't deprive each other of your conjugal duties, except for one thing. What is it? For prayer. And when that's over, make sure you get back to it because you don't want Satan to tempt you. Who's underlined that in your Bible anyway? <laughs> but then after that, Paul says this, now I say as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all were as I myself am. 
Now, what was Paul? Paul was single. You see, it's interesting that the two most influential characters in the early church, Jesus, arguably the most influential character, and Paul were both not married. And Paul says, I, 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 don't, I say this as a concession, it's not a command, I'm not commanding you, but I wish that you were all as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another kind. So marriage, according to Paul, is a gift, and singleness, according to Paul, is also a gift. And then he goes on to say this, he says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say this, it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, when it comes to the word good, when we think of the word good in the English language, we usually think of it as a comparative term. So you have something is good and therefore something is bad. So, you know, rugby league is good and Aussie rules is? All right. Just checking. Just checking if you're awake this morning. But that's not how this word is used in Greek. It's not used as a comparative term. It's actually Paul is saying, it is morally okay. It is within God's will, his moral will, for you to be single. He's not comparing it to marriage because he says marriage is a gift and singleness is a gift. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. You're not outside of the will of God if you are single. Now, why would he say this? Well, it's because in the first century, the first century as a traditional culture upheld the value of marriage. It upheld the value of marriage and said that people needed to be married because when you're married, what flows out of marriage is children, and children are your legacy, your hope in life. And so the, at that time, marriage had become this idol where people would get their sense of identity, their sense of security, they'd get it from being married. If you weren't married, you didn't have any rights, you were nothing, which is why you know, widows, uh, Caesar Augustus had this law that all widows needed to be remarried within two years of actually becoming widows. But in the church, Paul says, no, 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 no. Marriage is a gift. Singleness is a gift. And singleness is actually good. You're not incomplete. You're not half a person if you are single. In fact, Paul goes on to say in this chapter... There is a benefit to being single. He says this in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 27 to 28. He says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have many worldly troubles. And I want to spare you from that. Now, when Paul uses the word worldly here, he's not using it in a negative, sinful way. He's just saying, you'll have many earthly troubles in marriage. Marriage is actually difficult. It's hard. That's what Paul is saying. And he says in verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things or earthly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried and betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, 
not to lay any constraint upon you. I'm not trying to put a law upon you, Paul is saying, that you need to live up to. I don't want to place any constraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. You see, it is true that there is a blessing to singleness. That because you don't have another person to think about, you can do things in ministry and serve God in ministry in ways that you can't if you are married. Here's a picture of a friend of mine, uh, Marilyn Teague. Uh, Marilyn is the state advi- or the national advisor for OCF, Overseas Christian Fellowship. And uh, this past week, I've been the state advisor of OCF for the past 11 years. And this week, I resigned my position as the state advisor, just because as I've been thinking about all my priorities and thinking what God has on my plate, it's something that I can't do anymore. Uh, But Marilyn has been the state advisor for, I don't know, or the national advisor for maybe 20 or 30 years. It's just been incredible, her service to OCF. She once told me the story how when she was younger, she felt called by God to go to the mission field and be a missionary to Papua New Guinea. And uh, she went to Bible college and she came out of that Bible college and then a young man came on the scene. And he was a beautiful young man, a Christian young man, the man of her dreams in many, many ways. But as they courted and as they dated, it became obvious that he didn't feel a sense of call to the mission field, to Papua New Guinea. And so she had this choice to make. Was she going to get married to this man? Or was she going to follow these desires to go to the mission field? to Papua New Guinea. And even though it was painful and it was difficult, she decided to give up her opportunity and her desires to be married and go and serve the Lord on the mission field. It's interesting, who here does the soap Bible reading? Is it soap Bible reading? Well, we've been reading through the Gospel of Luke and it's interesting in the Gospel of Luke, Uh, What really spoke to me a couple weeks ago, uh, one day, is Jesus talking to the rich young ruler. And this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Wrong question, by the way. Can't do anything. (laughs) But anyway, he says that, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, have you kept all the commandments? And this rich young ruler says, man, Have I kept the commandments? I haven't just kept them since my bar mitzvah when I'm required to keep them. I've kept them since my youth. I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus looked him up and down and says, well, there's one thing you lack. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. You see, Jesus recognized that this rich young ruler had actually hadn't obeyed the very first commandment, which was to love God above all other things. He loved money. Now, when the disciples saw this, they're astounded. You know, if anyone is going to inherit the kingdom, it's rich people because everyone knows that God pulls out his blessing on rich people. That's why they're rich. And Jesus actually says, well, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then Peter says, well, Jesus, we have sacrificed all these things to follow you. And then Jesus said these words. He said, truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or the potential of being married 
or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Now, I know we as Baptists, we love talking about the eternal life aspect of that, but let's take it literally. Jesus actually says, there is no one who is sacrificed to the kingdom, for the kingdom, who will not receive blessing in this life and eternal life in the one to come. You see, you cannot outgive God. You cannot outgive God. And Aunty Marilyn, who's my good friend, she would testify to the fact that even though she sacrificed her desires and opportunities to be married in order to serve on the mission field, God has abundantly blessed her. She has spiritual children all around the world. There are kids who call her Auntie Marilyn everywhere and have included her in her family. And she has a rich and rewarding and fulfilling life. God is no man's debtor. No man's debtor. So here's the thing. Singleness is, is not, you're not second class. It is good. It is a gift from God. And there, there is a blessing to singleness. You can serve God with devotion in a particular way. But you might ask the question, but how can singleness be a good gift from God? I thought the Bible says that it is not good for a person to be alone. It does say that in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, after God formed the whole world and he said it's good, he says this when he looks down at Adam. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So God has just forged Adam out of the ground. He's breathed into Adam the breath of life. He's brought him into Eden. And Adam has this perfect fellowship with God. No sin has destroyed that fellowship with God. And yet still God says, it's not good for a man to be alone. You know, not only do we need relationship with God, but we're also created in such a way that we need human community, relationship with one another. And so you know the story, God causes a deep sleep to come upon the man. He takes a rib out of his side. He fashions Eve. Adam wakes up and he is like, whoa <laughs> In Hebrew, that's what it says, what it means. You are now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You shall be called woman for you were taken out of man. And then God performs the very first wedding ceremony. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then we read this beautiful statement, and the man and the woman were naked, and they were not ashamed. They had this beautiful transparency in their relationship. So you might say, that's what Genesis teaches. That's what Genesis teaches, that it's not good for a man or a woman to be alone. How can you say, therefore, that singleness is a good gift? Well, what you need to understand is that human marriage is not ultimate. It's not the ultimate thing. It points to something else. In Ephesians 5, which is one of the key passages in the Bible that teaches about marriage, and I'm sure in this series we're going to get to it, after Paul says to wives they need to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord, and after he says to husbands, you need to love your wives as Christ loves the church, 
Paul then says this. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. So in marriage, you leave all other relationships. You are joined to your spouse. You are committed to them. And then this mystery happens. Two people become one. And as Jesus said in Matthew 19, what God has joined together, let no man separate. This is the power of marriage. But then, Paul goes on to say this. He says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. You see, human marriage is not ultimate. It actually was designed to point to the ultimate thing, which is the union of Christ and the believer, Christ and his church. And so if you are not married, it's not like you're half a person or you're missing out. You're not missing out on the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is to be in Christ. And as Colossians says, we are complete in Him. We are complete in Christ. You're not half a person if you're single because you are complete in Him. You know, a shadow is formed by the sun hitting an object and then what comes out is a shadow. And typically you can make out what that object is from the shadow. So when you look at this shadow, you think, man... This is probably a woman here who's, who's, who's standing here. But the shadow is not the ultimate thing. It's just a representation of what is ultimate. And human marriage is not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is the union of believers with Christ. You know, Jesus was once asked by Sadducees who were trying to trip him up. They said, Jesus, you know, this guy dies, he gets married and, he di and his wife dies... And then, you know, he gets remarried, and that second wife dies, and then he gets remarried a third time, and that wife dies. Jesus, what happens on Resurrection Day? What happens? Which wife is, you know, they're going to be upset that he, which wife is the true wife, Jesus? And Jesus said to them, he said, what you've got to understand is that in the eternal state, there is going to be neither marriage nor giving in marriage. In the eternal state, there isn't going to be human marriage because we will all reach the ultimate thing, which is union with Jesus, closeness with Jesus. You know, I've often said to Tegan, I've said to Tegan, you know, in the eternal state, we will be closer than we are right now because we will be in Christ with all sin removed and all pain removed and all the effects of the fall removed and we will be so close in that eternal state. Sarah Rose, in her excellent book, Pure Love, summarizes it this way. Um, singleness, rather than being a state of incompletion, affords us the opportunity to discover the true source of our completion. While God calls many to be married, he does not call anyone to find their identity or security in anyone beside himself. Sometimes I've found myself feeling like Jesus is the consolation prize, the backup husband that I get because I haven't found a real one. But God is teaching me that nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is more of a companion, more of a provider, more of a leader, more of a comforter, more of a sacrificial lover than any husband or wife could ever be. Being single cannot force a person to deepen their trust and relationship with Jesus. can force a person to deepen their trust and relationship with Jesus because they don't have the distraction of a spouse that gives the illusion of providing these things. Getting to know Jesus as the bridegroom on earth is not a disadvantage, but a privilege. 
and, when, and one that leads to a radical and fulfilling life. But you might say, is it okay to desire and want to be married? Of course it's okay to want to desire to be married. That's natural. That's a natural thing. But you have to ask yourself, what's behind your desires? You know, oftentimes we desire to be married because we're making marriage an idol that we think will provide us security and identity. Tim Keller, he writes this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says, how different seeking marriage would be if we were to view marriage as a vehicle for spouses helping each other become their glorious future selves through sacrificial service and spiritual friendship. What happens if we see the mission of marriage to teach us about our sins in unique and profound ways and to grow us out of them through providing someone who speaks the truth in love to us? How different it would be if we were to fall in love, especially with the glorious thing God is doing in our spouses' lives. You know, here is a picture of my beautiful wife, Tegan. And when Tegan and I were dating in youth group, basically, marriage and girlfriends and boyfriends were an idol. You sought after having a girlfriend or you sought after having a boyfriend in our youth group so that you could have someone on your arm to make you look good. And so consequently, our youth group was always, everyone was always partnering up in our youth group. And people after a time would actually change. They would find new people who they were dating and all of that sort of stuff. And I've got to be honest, I think one of the reasons why I got married so young, at the age of 19, was probably out of a wrong motive. But after 27 years of marriage, there has been nothing more frustrating, nothing more painful, nothing more glorious, Nothing more of a blessing than my marriage to Tegan. A couple of years ago, I was traveling over to New Zealand, and I was just praying and just thanking God for my precious wife. And I said, Lord, I thank you so much. I didn't know what the heck I was doing at the age of 19. <laughs> but you, in your sovereignty, you chose the exact right person for me who would be able to help me discover my idolatries, my sin, the places where I needed to change. You know, even in the midst of depression, the difficulty of going through that, I am still so thankful because it's causing me to lay down idolatries. Lay down things that I've held on to and I need too much. Because in the end, the only thing you really need is Jesus. And in the end, the whole purpose of the Christian life is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And let me tell you, marriage is God's sneaky way of getting you crucified. <laughs> it totally is. Ever I see people getting married or in the first year of my marriage, their marriage, I think you don't know what you're in for yet. <laughs> because even the most compatible people are still marrying sinners. And what do sinners do? They sin. 
They leave the toilet seat up a billion times. They leave crumbs on the table when they know that you, that drives you insane to leave crumbs on the table or whatever your spouse does. I don't want to get you in trouble. But here's the thing. This is what Tim Keller writes. He says, we should neither be elated by getting married nor overly disappointed by not being so because Christ is the only spouse that can truly satisfy us and God's family, the only family that will truly embrace and satisfy us. See, Jesus, when uh, you know, his mother and brothers came to him to put him away quietly, they came to him and people said, Jesus, your mother and brothers are here. And he said, I want to tell you who my true family is. My true family is the ones who do the will of God. Our true family are the people who are in this room. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we care for one another. And that need for human community is met in this place, in the church family, as we love each other. So let me give you some applications to close my message. First application, you know, surrender your right feelings and rights to God. If you're single and, you have, and you're struggling with that, surrender it to God. Surrender your rights and your feelings to God. Secondly, trust in the goodness of God. Our God is a good God. Do you know that old saying from, um, yeah, I, think, uh, I think it's from Ron Canoli, God is good all the time? Let's try it again because that was pretty pathetic. God is good all the time? Let's try it one more time, just so, you know, with a smile on our face. God is good all the time? Far out. You guys are getting fired up. One more time. God is good all the time? And our good Father only knows how to give good gifts. We might see that they're good in the moment, but they are good gifts. So trust in the goodness of God. Thirdly, find the community God has for you. It isn't good for you to be alone. God has made us for community, but this is the community where you can have other brothers and sisters and family relationships and a fullness of life in here. And then embrace the gift of singleness. Singleness provides you, might provide you an opportunity to serve the Lord in ways that you have not seen before. And then finally, this is for all of the church family who aren't single. Care and embrace singles. Care and embrace singles. Be careful what you say around singles. Let's be careful not to create a culture where singles feel like they're half a person or they feel like there's something wrong with them. So when a new sort of young single person walks through the door, don't be like jabbing the person going, hey, check that person out. Let me tell you, they already know. They've already seen before you have. Their radar is up, all right? Can I give an amen from all the singles here today? Their radar is up. So you're just putting a burden on them. Just release them. Don't put them under any restraint, restraint as Paul tries to say. I don't want to restrain you. I don't want to give you a command. Just don't put them under any restraint like that. Care for them. Embrace them into your families. Love them because they are true family. And do you know what? It's not, only, it's not only that they get the blessing, actually, you get the blessing too. You, they bless you so much more. So much more of a blessing. Now, I, was, I didn't finish this way in the first service, but I thought, let's, let's try it, hey? Let's finish this way now in this service. Paul actually finishes in 1 Corinthians 7 with this statement, which puts everything in perspective. 
You probably can't read it from the back, but let me read it for you. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. All of the discussion on marriage and family and relationships needs to be put in the context of this is not our ultimate. Jesus could come back at any moment. So don't put too, many, too much weight on the present world, but look to the future, to the future world, and live on mission for him right now, waiting his return. Well, let me pray, shall we? Let's stand up together and let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for all of the gifts that you have given us, that you are a good father and you only know how to give good gifts. And it's sometimes to us, it seems in our circumstance, like the gift isn't good. <laughs> it seems difficult and painful and hard. But because of your grace to us on the cross, we know that you are a good father. And though there might be pain in the offering, we still offer ourselves to you in full trust that on the other side, we will see your hand at work. We will see your blessing. We will see what you are doing. And so, Father, we just proclaim your name here today. We worship you here today. And we proclaim the victory of Jesus over our church. Lord, we thank you that he has won a mighty victory and he is Lord of all. And we thank you for him in Jesus' powerful name. We pray and God's people said, Amen. Amen.